Well, I am happy to be here today, and I can hardly wait to hear what I'm about to say. <laughs> so Reverend Bonnie called me up, or actually emailed me uh, a few weeks ago, saying, we'd like to have you speak. Could you give me a topic? And I said, sure, I'll get back to you in a couple days, and I'll have a topic for you. And I thought about it, and I thought, well, let's go big. <laughs> so, so I said, Reverend Bonnie, how about birth, death, and everything in between? <laughs> now, I sat and thought about what I was going to say, and I didn't know what the heck I was going to say. Because that's an amazingly large topic, you know? And I had just gotten back from a 50-year high school reunion. So I was sensitive to the issues about life and the ark that we create. You know? And, and so I'm thinking there, and I'm thinking there. I say, okay, well, let's start here. What in Buddhism connects birth, life, and death? I'll just find that, and then I'll have something to talk about. So I read, and I reflected, and I Google searched, and I'm thinking, this is a little harder than I expected, I said to myself. And then the epiphany occurred. I said, why, of course. Why didn't I think about this in the beginning? So I'm going to share with you what I have come to conclude that Buddhism has to say about birth, life, and death. Now, let's start at the beginning. There wasn't one. <laughs> in, in Buddhism, we don't have a beginning. We don't even have a first family, like Adam and Eve. We don't have them. It's like this circle. It's always been and always will be. So, looking at my life, I have existed in some form from the beginningless beginning. And now here I am today, 2017, in Ventura. How did I get here? Well, then I thought, okay, so from beginningless beginning, I had existed in some way but in this particular form, April 3rd, 1949, something remarkable happened. I was born. How did I do that? And I've heard it said that we didn't ask to be born. But if you're a Buddhist, you did. <laughs> you asked. So I, I blame my parents, they fell in love, and I blame myself, I had karma, and those two things came together, and like nine months later, I showed up in this amazing world we call Earth and the present moment. So what got me there? It was my karma. Karma is the connecting tissue from birth, life, death, rebirth. That's what connects it. That's what it does. 
Karma allows us to be reborn time and time again so we can suffer. <laughs> but in all that suffering, there is a way to be happy. I have concluded, and that's the karma. Karma can make us happy, and karma can make us sad. And we are in charge. It's up to us, and that's the coolest part, I think. We don't need to petition anything or anyone to give us a better life. We just need to get busy. We do it. So, karma, let me make it clear. It is so easy to understand. Karma is everything we think, everything we say, and everything we do. <laughs> karma is like everything. And in the way we think it, say it, and do it, the consequences turn out to be pleasant or unpleasant. Okay, it makes pretty good sense, doesn't it? But how does this karma migrate lifetime to lifetime? Well, karma is like a verb. It's like a process that occurs. And we're the karmic generator, us, in this lifetime. And so every time I think something, say something, or do something, I am transforming energy. It is a neutral energy, and I am giving it a moral value. So if I have a good thought, which turns into good speech, the consequence should be pleasant for myself and others. And it works the other way, too. This karma that we've created lifetime after lifetime follows us lifetime after lifetime. So I think of it in this way. We're like the boat, and karma is like the engine creating a wake behind the boat. And then when it's our turn to sink, the wake of the boat continues and attaches to the next boat. So that's the causal connection between all the lifetimes and all the manifestations I have been. But as you can tell, I don't get to go. This I, me, and mine is temporary and momentary. So it's like a relay race. I have a baton, the karmic energy baton, and I'm handing it off to the next person in the next lifetime. I'm hoping sometimes that they run a good leg of the relay race, but for me, it really, really doesn't matter because my race is over. I get to relax now. And the next leg continues and creates its own karma and then it has to hand off the baton to the next person. We oftentimes have a really good start. Say you were born in Ventura instead of South Central Los Angeles. That's cool. That's good karma. <laughs> but now, let's say you took it for granted that life was great and Ventura is pleasant, and then you move to Detroit. And you go, man, what the heck happened? And then you say, I got to do something about it because I'm in charge of my life. And if I don't like the way it's going or where it's happening, I can do something about it. 
All I have to do is think good thoughts, say good things, do good actions. Now, you would think that would be easy, because most of us know the difference between good and bad, right and wrong. But for a Buddhist, it's not that easy, because we don't have good and bad, right and wrong. We have no divine lawgiver who defines for us what we should or shouldn't do. We have karma. We have skillful and unskillful. We have more suffering and less suffering. And if we petition karma to give us a break, karma doesn't care. <laughs> Pretty cruel. You know, but that's just like gravity. The other night, I rescued a mouse from three cats in the backyard. And the little mouse jumped on my shoe, and we walked away from the cats. <laughs> then I put the little mouse in a box, and about midnight, I took it outside. I wanted to give it a break, because the cats were about to come in, to the room where the mouse was. So I'm walking and I'm walking and it's dark and, and the lights aren't on and I, I trip and I fall just like that, bang. Really surprised me. I haven't fallen in a long time. So I checked myself, I was fine, the mouse was okay. <laughs> and I let the mouse go. And the mouse ran away and the cats didn't see where it went. I figured it's at least got a couple more days of life before the cats find it again. And then I looked up to the sky, and I said, Gravity, why did you make me fall? And Gravity said nothing in response. <laughs> gravity didn't care whether I stirred or laid on the ground. It doesn't care, and that's the same way our karma works as well. It doesn't care. Its job is just to create consequences. Karma, consequence. Karma, consequence. So I'm working on this now, and I'm thinking, okay, I got it down. It's pretty easy to understand, but now, now, now there's a roadblock to all our happiness. And it's called the three poisons in Buddhism. Greed, hatred, and delusion. And we don't understand how to be skillful sometimes because we have too much greed, hatred, and delusion. And if you're on Facebook like I am, politically, there seems to be a lot of hatred going on about everything. There also seems to be a lot of greed and delusion as well. But that's another story. So I'm thinking, okay, how am I going to get rid of my greed, hatred, and delusion so I can have skillful, good karma and always have pleasant consequences? So I said to myself, well, where does that greed and hatred and delusion reside? In what part of my body? Is it my left hand? Do I need to really identify it as living there? No, it doesn't seem to be in my body at all, I said to myself. It seems to be in my mind. 
It's my mind that creates an intention that leads my speech and action into the world. So in order to get rid of my greed, hatred, and delusion, I need to change my mind. So I said to myself, well, what's the best way for a Buddhist to change his or her mind? And then I said, it's got to be meditation. It's got to be the observing of the mind arising, existing, and passing away, and noting what it's filled with. Is it filled with greed, or is it filled with generosity? Is it filled with hatred, or is it filled with loving kindness? Is it filled with delusion, or is it filled with wisdom and clarity? So I sat for long periods of time and watched my mind arise and realized it was filled with all of them. Sometimes greed was number one, usually when it had to do with ice cream. <laughs> but other times there was a, a hint of generosity when I go out and feed the cats, you know, and, and people help me with food and I'm out there twice a day feeding the cats, and, and they're, they, they appreciate it at the level a cat can appreciate it. They eat it. <laughs> so then I say to myself, is there any benefit from feeding cats? You know, and I go, well, you know what? You can always say at least once a day you did something good, even if the rest of the day you messed it up completely. So I look at that cat feeding as a real karmic responsibility. My karma depends every day on me going out with equanimity, not hatred or anger or love and kindness, but just perfect balance of mind and not expecting anything in return, and I'm never disappointed. So, okay, I'm working on this, and I'm thinking, I, you know what? If I can get all or most of the greed, hatred, and delusion gone, or at least subdued for a while, I'm going to have better karma, and my life will be better. I'll be happier. I'll be more inspired. I'll be more grateful. You know, and grateful is tough sometimes. So then, reflecting on the 50-year high school reunion... I'm thinking to myself, when I left most of these people, they were like teenagers. And now we're all senior citizens, just sitting around having a glass of wine, remembering a life, you know? But we're remembering a life because it's soon to end. Don't get depressed. <laughs> it's soon to end, and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, you know, I've been lucky. I had a non-traditional life for at least half my life. I was this guy, you know, and now this guy is going to have to check out one of these days. And what's going to happen then? What's going to happen to the karma that I have been creating this whole lifetime? Do I want to send out good karma? Do I want that man or woman or dog or cat who gets my karma to say thank you very much? I am so happy you lived a life, and now it's part of me. So I was thinking, we all need a good book. We all need a good book. 
And this is how you put together a good book. You get a journal or you get a notepad. And once a day, you sit down and you write one thing you did good. One thing, that's all. Maybe you helped somebody or gave somebody a dollar or let somebody watch the television program they wanted to watch or fed a cat or a dog. Just one thing and you write it down. And that becomes your good book. And then, as you are dying, a friend, a relative, a hospice worker reads to you from your good book the one thing every day you did good. And depending on how long it's going to take you to die, you could go through hundreds of pages. <laughs> and every time they remind you what you did, you feel better about yourself and the life you lived. And you are elevated. Your consciousness is not a victim any longer. You are happy you were here, and you are happy you get to do it again in some other form. And then you die. Well, how long is it until you're reborn again, you might say? Well, according to some Buddhist traditions, they say you could be reborn in the first day. And you would connect with a sperm and an egg that has come together out of love, attachment, and lust. <laughs> and you would begin. Now, sometimes it takes longer. Sometimes it takes like seven days, 49 days, six months, a year, but usually within a year you found your new home and you're off for another adventure, another way to live your life. Now, it's sad for the ones who are left behind because they don't want you to go. They want you to stay as long as you can, no matter what condition your body is in. So it's best to talk to everyone and say, listen, you know, I got to go, because everybody's got to go. Our final destination is a six-foot box. No matter how rich you are, how poor you are, what ethnicity you are, we all sort of end up in the same place. The great equalizer, they say. So don't be sad. And as I continue to die in front of you, I'm going to have to turn away from you. I can't be distracted. You got to turn off the TV you got to stop telling me how much you love me and how much you want me to stay because I can't stay. And your love does me no good in the next lifetime. So if you really do love me, let me go. Wish me well. Have a party. Enjoy the fact that I was here, but also enjoy the fact that I get to do it again in some other way for the rest of eternity. Until that one lifetime, that one day, that one moment, we achieve nirvana. Wow, that is going to be spectacular. The world's going to open, the rainbows will start shining again, and we're going to be in the best place we could have ever been in. We will never have to suffer again. We have ended our karma forever in nirvana. 
And because we've ended that karma, we can't be reborn ever again. We now exist in nirvana. Well, you might say, Kusla, you know, this is a hard sell because it sounds like you're encouraging us not to exist after having existed from beginning as time. Now you say the end result is never having to exist again. What is the deal? <laughs> and the deal is this. I think, personally, I think that the Buddha found a way to exist without being born. Now think about that. Everything on this planet was born. It has a first cause. It was created. As a Buddhist, we don't give too much thought to that whole thing because it really doesn't help us end our suffering. It just gives us stuff to think about and talk about. If we could figure out a way to exist without being born, we wouldn't have to die ever again. And in all the lifetimes we have lived, in all the many manifestations we have, have been, we have buried parents and loved ones and siblings and pets and cried tears that could fill the oceans. And then we continue to do it again and again and again. Because it takes a long time to figure out how to use karma to your advantage. It takes a long time to change your mind and have all the positive states and not the negative states. It takes a long time. And none of us know how long we've been practicing. So somebody here today, tomorrow, could have achieved nirvana. Now, we might not recognize the fact that they achieved nirvana, because I'm not sure it's going to stand out. I don't know if you get to wear cool shoes if you got nirvana. <laughs> you know, how would you recognize someone? Maybe, maybe because there's so much love and kindness and compassion, and they have sympathetic joy and they have equanimity. Maybe some of those, maybe those are the characteristics we need to look for, but they're hard to see, hard to spot, because we have this idea of what we're looking at, and sometimes that doesn't go away. I was at, in, in Phoenix, I was at the Musical Instrument Museum. I was surprised it's in Phoenix. It's amazing, though. They have instruments from every nation on earth. They have a whole, they have a whole section of rock and roll. They have a country section. They have clothes and guitars and pianos that all these icons have played. And my brother was just so fascinated. Look at that. Johnny Cash wore that jacket, and it's black. I go, yeah, you know, he always wore black. That is so cool. But I looked at the jacket, and I just saw a jacket. That's all. He was seeing the jacket through the, through the, the prism of what he understood Johnny Cash to be. He was giving it value and something special. And I was just looking at an old black jacket. And I thought, I don't know. Did I lose that ability? to put the concept before what I see, to make, the, make what I see even more special? Am I now just looking at stuff and people are amazed that I don't see what they see? And maybe that's the case. I don't know if that's bad or good, but I wasn't so impressed with all these old instruments and old clothes as he was, and he was having the best time, and I was just having a time. <laughs> and that's cool. So maybe part of nirvana is looking at the world in sort of a realistic way, 
and seeing it for what it really is. But because you've done so much practice on yourself, now you're able to not just freak out and kill yourself. Now you just look at it and go, wow, wow. And you might say to yourself, I thought it would be better than this. Because it's overhyped. Nirvana, enlightenment, we all got to get it. It's going to be fantastic. Nothing will matter after that. I don't know. The Buddha, after his nirvana, taught how to end suffering until he died at the age of 80. Because he saw everybody was still suffering except for him. And that maybe he could be of service to them. Help them suffer less. Even help them end their suffering forever. So I don't know if it's going to make our lives that much better. But it will be a life of service from that moment on. A life of empathy. A life of compassionate activity. And that's cool. That's a nice way to check out. And then you're not reborn ever again. But you live in this sort of parallel universe with all these nirvana people, except Kirk Cobain. <laughs> he probably won't be there. But I don't know. Maybe he will. But there will be a lot of arahants and the Buddhas before, and there will be a lot of really cool, what's, what should I say, not people, there won't be people, essence, energy, a lot of really cool energy. And you'll be part of that energy. And you'll never have to be sad again. So that's what I came to understand from giving Reverend Bonnie the topic, birth, death, and everything in between. Thank you. Thank you.